The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello and welcome to a special early episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm Tim Foster. Normally your host would be Rich Eisen and I would be the co-host, you know, filling the Ed McMahon slot. But today we're going to do something a little bit differently. So Rich is going to be the co-host and I'm going to be interviewing him about the brand new hot off the press 15th edition of the top 100. Rich, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Tim. How are you doing? I am well. I'm exhausted from a long week. It's it's <laughs> only the midweek, but it's already been a long week for us. And for those, I'm, I'm assuming most of our listeners will be familiar with the top 100. For those of you who are not, the top 100 is a list that Capital Weekly has done annually now, 15 times. And it is a rundown of the power players in California politics and public policy who are not elected. So not the governor, not any legislators, not any mayors or city council people or boards of supervisor members, but staffers, lobbyists, labor leaders, donors, journalists, uh, you name it, people who have made a big impact on California public policy over the last year as assessed by our editorial staff. And the head of our editorial staff is none other than Capital Weekly podcast host, Rich Eisen. So Rich, this is your very first time putting this list together. It has been done for the last 14 editions by either Anthony York and John Howard, or for the last 10 years at least, just John Howard. So this is your first time in the cockpit on this list, and you approached it a little differently. So you do, want, do you want to talk about your, your way of putting this list together, like how you came up with these 100 people? Sure. And, and, you know, for me, I think going in uh, and as I talk to people around the Capitol, you know, what I, I did not have an agenda. That's the thing I really want to make clear. I didn't have an agenda or say, you know, we need to have a certain number of women or a certain number of, of anybody. But what I did want to do was take a fuller look at the entire Capitol community in a way that we maybe hadn't done before. And to do that, I really wanted to look behind the scenes a little bit more. So I wanted to look, as you noted, at, at uh, staffers and at consultants and uh, even more reporters. And I, you know, I will say, you know, I, I really took a broad look at uh, the entire Capitol press corps, uh, of course, at the third house, but definitely folks inside the building and out who you know, I think, as I said in my write-up, if you get a chance to read, uh, you know, the Top 100 book, I really wanted to take a look at people who were uh, behind the scenes, who made the wheels turn on a regular basis and, and had power and influence in ways that we don't normally look at or certainly haven't looked at uh, quite as much in previous editions. So that was my thoughts going into it. I really wanted to take a broader look at the fuller picture of the capital community. And so the process, as it has developed over the years, uh, well, and let me give a little bit of a historical backstory. So when this started back in 2009, when we did the very first list, Capital Weekly was still a print edition of a newspaper. It came out every week. And our publisher at that time was Arnold York. And Arnold York loved lists. He walked around the office with a giant book of lists. And he was constantly talking about these lists and that we needed to have more lists in the Capital Weekly because people love lists, which he's totally right. And so one of our advertising people said, gosh, you guys should do a list of the 100 most powerful politicians in California. And the editors thought, well, that's kind of not that hard to do. Really, you start with the governor and then powerful legislators, powerful mayors, etc. cetera. Uh, but then they started talking about that. What if we did 100, you know, the 100 people that have the most juice in California politics who are not elected. And then all of a sudden, the wheels really started turning and they decided to do it. And they did it over two weeks, you know, the first week, one edition of the paper, and then they did the next was the, the other 50 the next week. And if, as you might imagine, got a lot of traction and a lot of complaints. Uh, and, and to be fair, that first list, you know, I mean, people really didn't get a full bio. They just got like a sentence or so. And it was pretty much 
seat of the pants, just Anthony and John talking about people uh, in the Capitol. And, and, you know, I'm kind of surprised that the person who ran the coffee cart in the basement didn't end up on the top 100 list because that was sort of the attitude. It was very snarky, uh, but it was valuable. And, and we realized that people really cared about this. And so we've done it every year since and tried to impart some sort of a strategy, broader strategy to putting the list together since people took it seriously. Uh, so the biggest part of that strategy is asking a lot of people what they think, and, you know, going to people that have been on the list, people who work in the building, people who are elected, people who are journalists, etc. And I know John, I think in one year, John did well over a hundred interviews on the list. And I think he was ready to uh, commit Harry Carey uh, afterwards <laughs> for that. So this year, that was your process pretty much just talking to people, correct? Well, it was certainly a big part of the process. Um, you know, I also did a lot of research, uh, a lot of reading, tried to do everything I could to learn as much about uh, as many people as I could. And of course, you know, I've been around the Capitol for a long time too, but um, I'd also been away a little bit too, covering more of the national perspective. So there was some reacquainting going on on my end, but that's been going on since I came on board in January. But definitely talking to people as much as I could and getting uh, varied perspectives, uh, getting a lot of uh, insights into how the building really works. And, you know, who are some of those people, as I talked about before, that, were, that are behind the scenes? And one of the things I know that we've done a lot in the past, we really focused on who had had a big year, you know, who had been really... Uh, instrumental in something, uh, you know, big legislation, big policy moves, maybe big ballot measure, big campaigns in the preceding year. And that's great. We still definitely have those folks. But I also wanted to take a look at an overall body of work and get more of a perspective on people who have that kind of influence year in and year out, whether and, and, and are not the ones who are going to be out there at the front of a campaign or at the front of a of a staffing a big bill, et cetera. Uh, we all know people like Nick Hardiman, who is the chief of staff for uh, uh, Senate Pro Town, Tony Atkins. Obvious choice to be on the list, you know, chief of staff to, to arguably one of the five most powerful politicians in the state. No question deserves to be there. There's a, there's a handful of other chiefs on this list this year too. And I, you know, so I want to look at people like that who, you know, also have influence also had use, also have power in ways that maybe we haven't thought of so much in the past. So a lot of that came from uh, a lot of clandestine conversations at places where we were not likely to be run into by somebody who would know what, you know, it would be obvious what we were talking about. So you mean you weren't sitting at Chicory? We were not sitting at Chicory. No, actually, that's not true. We had one I did have one meeting with one person at, at Chicory, but all the rest were, you know, Zoom's a wonderful thing, but a lot, lot of, lot of text messaging back and forth, a lot of phone calls, a lot of, uh, I think I joked around about millions of cups of coffee were drank. It's uh, only a slight exaggeration, but uh, you know, I'm a reporter. I prefer to sit down with people face to face, and you know, I look at body language and and all kinds of things the way all reporters do when we talk, and so. Uh, that was still a good old-fashioned shoe leather was a big part of it this year. And and before I forget, in case I didn't make it clear, I truly, really deeply appreciate all of the insights and information that people shared with me, the trust that they put into me, because I had to trust them back too. I mean, they're telling me stuff and I'm, I'm telling them what my thoughts are. And, you know, uh, it's hard to keep a secret around... The capital, we know this, right? But people were, were I think, quite good at that. Um, and certainly they had to trust that my intentions were good and I was being honest. And so I really, really appreciated every every info nugget that people gave me. Sure. And, you know, you're talking about uh, trusting people. And that's something that comes into this a lot is, you know, your judgment, because frankly, you are getting lobbied and spun as you know as the phrase goes uh for people that want their friends on this list or or also people that want their enemies off this list i mean there's there are people who would definitely approach the editorial staff here and you know john anthony and you 
and uh, other reporters you have worked Capital Weekly over the years uh, saying, oh, well, you really need to have this person on the list or conversely, I don't know why you had that person on this list. They don't belong there and you should make sure that that they're not on this. So that's something that you really have to tease out here. And, it, and it's, you know, that's a big part of this job is figuring out when someone is giving you information, you know, really because they want to have the most accurate list. And then sometimes people might have their biases. Well, then that's absolutely true. And, you know, look, I, I think the one thing I hope, I really do hope that people understand when they talk to me, I'll listen to anybody. And um, whether you're mad at me or whether you're happy about something, whatever the case may be, I people did start lobbying me, uh, God, all the way back in February. And I took all of them. They those... waited that long, really? <laughs> yeah. I, I think it was three weeks in, people started saying, hey, you know, a couple of people you really ought to think about. Sometimes they were lobbying for themselves. That's true. Not, not as many. Uh, most were lobbying for other people's. A lot of them were their bosses, you know. And and look, I listened to all of it. I considered it all. As I think I've said to a lot of people, this was probably more really realistically about 30 lists because that's how, you know, we started with the basics and then you build a list and you tear it down, you build a list, you tear it down. Names are coming on, names are going off right up to about an hour before we absolutely had to get the final list to the printer. And so, you know, I gave ample consideration to everybody that that somebody suggested to me, whether I, my initial reaction might have been, you know, hopefully not obviously on my face, you know, that's crazy. Why would we put that person on? But, you know, then I sat back and thought about it. Is this, you know, how how much consideration should I really give this person? Uh, you know, enough to go look and let's see what they did, blah, blah, blah. And I'll be honest, there's, there's, look, it is a fool's errand to think that you, me, or anybody else can put the definitive list together of the hundred most powerful people in a community of thousands. What we have done in this very subjective process is to take a lot of opinions and a lot of um, stuff that's in the public realm, of course, a lot of conversation, like I say, millions of cups of coffee, you put it all together in a big, in a big pot and you stir it around. And then somebody has to be the final bottom line to make the decision of who and who out of that thousands of people ends up on the, that list of a hundred. Uh, in this case, it's me. Previous, of course, it was John. Um, but really at the end of the day, a, a lot of people had input here. And like I say, my, my main job was to listen to everybody, really take it into account and ultimately decide who I thought this year, given what we were trying to do in particular, who I thought belonged on this list. And I'm, I'm really proud of the list we put together. Uh, I mock politicians who say that I'm really proud to sign this bill. So I just sounded like one of those people, but, but, you know, I think it's a, a everybody on this list deserves to be here. I really believe that. So that, that was my process. Well, and, and I think you really hit the nail on the head when you say that this is as objectively as we can approach a totally subjective process. Uh, you know, it, it's really, you know, one of the things that's funny is you'll have people on the list and there'll be one number is a lobbyist. And then the next lump number will be uh, the head of an agency appointed by the governor. And then the next number might be a, a journalist. And their scale of impact is not comparable in any logical sense. I mean, you can't do it monetarily. You can't do it by amount of bills passed or anything. So you just have to sort of fumble around and feel it and and you know that's a very subjective pre process by its nature and i feel like the list uh you know the list stands on its own and again it is something that is very I, I won't say it's arbitrary that's not a correct word but it's very subjective and we own that and you know if someone else has a problem with it they can make their own list and people have done that actually over the years there have been people who said hey the alternate top 100 you know they made their other list um but ours has so far, you know, it stood the test of time for 15 editions. So with that, you know, no one wants to hear us blather on about what a great job we did picking this year's list. They want to hear about who's on and who's off. So let's talk about some of the new names this year that have never been on the list before and how they got there. 
Yeah, you know, we had 31 names on the list this year that were not on the list last year. And of those 31 people, 26 had never been on the list before. And a few like uh, Liz Snow, who is the chief of staff for uh, new assembly speaker, uh, Robert Revis, uh, she had not been on the list in years. Uh, a few others had not been on the list in years of, of those who had been on previously. So, uh, and 26, I guess, say, had never been on the list before. Um, you know, one that comes to mind right off is somebody like Lindsay Cobia, uh, who is uh, by title the executive director of Gavin Newsom's Campaign for Democracy PAC, which is, of course, the big, uh, very high profile campaign that he's waging against uh, red state uh, policymakers. And, you know, eh, let's be honest, building his profile for, you know, what we all presume is going to be at some point a national campaign. By the uh, way, let me interrupt you and just say, like, is Ron DeSantis even going to still be in the race by the time they have this debate? That's my question, because it's <laughs> not looking good for him. But anyway, I but I know it's not looking good. I And I think it's not looking good for that debate either. I, I'm, you know, I think we can. I think it's highly unlikely that debate's going to come off. But but the other thing, you know, about about about. Lindsay Cobia, she's got a finger in everything that the governor is doing. And, and multiple people told me this. In fact, I, I jokingly called her a Swiss army knife. And somebody said, you know, that's actually a name that gets thrown around, a nickname that gets thrown around a lot for her in the horseshoe. And so it was a natural fit. She's not somebody who's high profile. She's not out there in, in anybody's, uh, any reporter's line of sight. But She's somebody that really matters in the governor's world. And so we really, you know, I, I thought it was really important to have her highly, highly placed on the list. And she's number 13. And she's only a couple of slots in front of uh, Rick Revis. Now, again, outside of our world, a lot of people couldn't pick Rick Revis out of a crowd of two. In the capital community, you know, we all know, of course, he's the younger brother of Robert Revis, the new assembly speaker. You know, those of us in our world, we know that there was a pretty intense behind the scenes campaign uh, by the Revis camp to replace uh, former speaker, now former speaker, Anthony Rendon. And, you know, Rick was instrumental in that. Um, I think the big question going forward is how much influence is Rick Revis going to continue to have on his brother, Robert? Um, it was a Topic of great interest at a recent Sacramento Press Club luncheon when where the speaker was there. Um, I think by his own answer, uh, you know, he he highlighted then how important his brother has been in his campaigns, though, you know, he insists he's not going to have undue influence. Well, OK. Um, and, I, and I know there were those within that realm who encouraged me, shall we say, to not put him on the list. But, you know, again, this is one of those times where. I think I would have looked silly. We would have looked silly to not have him on the list because to think that he's not going to have some kind of influence, I think is naive at best. And so he's on the list. Now, he will he be there next year? I don't know. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. That's that's to be seen, right? But obvious, obvious person to be on the, or obvious new person uh, to be on the list this year. So th those are definitely a couple and, and one more I really want to uh, mention here, too. There's folks like Viviana Becerra, who's the chief of staff to AG Attorney General uh, Rob Bonta. I thought that was a very, very interesting choice. And this is something John and I had gone back and forth on over the years. And, you know, just to be clear, I'm not making the decisions on the top one of your list. But I do. We spitball in the office a lot. And I often would say, hey, what about the chiefs of staff for the mayor of L.A., the mayor of San Francisco? Uh, you know, Mayor Fresno, I mean, Ashley Schweringen at one point was a sort of a big name in California politics. You know, I, I wondered about their staff. Were they really playing an outsized role that we were not seeing uh, because they weren't at the Capitol? And the AG's office is a perfect example, you know, he, and that's someone where John just at the end of the day, he decided that in his purview, that was not appropriate. And I like that you took a little bit of a different tack. And I, I think it's really interesting and probably reflects, you know, the nature of power in California, such as it is. But anyway, go ahead. Well, and and really with, with people um, specifically looking at somebody like Viviana Becerra, you know, she's only 32 years old. I think she has a, 
a uh, unbelievable career in front of her. She could probably do just about anything she wanted to do in this sphere. And I, you know, I think it's smart for us sometimes to also, like I say, look at that whole body of work because she's not out in the public eye yet. If she ever chose, uh, you know, chose to be, she absolutely could be. And so I think it's smart sometimes to take a look at, at people that are doing those kinds of things. Now, somebody who's probably never going to put themselves out there as a candidate or anything like that. I looked at somebody like Leah, Lo, uh, Leah Lopez, who's the chief administrative officer uh, for the Assembly Rules Committee. There is so much that goes into those jobs. And uh, the, the two people who were in those jobs or in that job, I should say, before her, uh, of course, uh, John Waldy was there for 17 years. And then uh, Deborah Gravert was there almost another de a decade. Now, uh, Deborah has re uh, retired last year. Leah took over. And, and But Leah's been around the Capitol almost as long as those two combined. Her father worked in the legislature. She's been around the building since she was a little girl. There's probably a handful of people at best who know that building better than her. And if you want to look at you know, how things get done, they get done often through people like her. And it's little things, right? There's so much administrative stuff. There's uh, assigning bills to committees. There's staffing and budgeting issues, all these things that are so important to how a bill gets from A to B. I thought it was high time that we took a look at somebody like her and gave gave her the kind of recognition that that everybody in the building, I think, gives somebody like that. But a lot of times outside the building, maybe they don't. So, well, and you know, to give a little background, there was a year where Deborah Grabert was not on the list. And I don't remember the exact circumstances, but she was still in position, but she was not on the list. And boy, did we hear about it. Yes. <laughs> so so uh, that was, it was pretty clear that we had, I can't say we made a mistake, but, uh, you know, the decision... To, to not have her on was later rethought and she returned to the list because there had been, I can't say necessarily an outcry, but certainly we heard about it. So those folks, I think in the building, people that are actually making the sausage know how important those folks are. Absolutely. And, and you know, I could go on, but it, you know, I, I really encourage folks, if you haven't done it, go, go take a good look at the list. Cause there's, you know, there's Mark McKenzie, who's the staff director for the Senate appropriations committee. And, and people like Mary Kennedy from the public safety, uh, the Senate uh, Public Safety Committee, uh, you know, there's there's folks like that, you know, and, and the lobbyists will tell you this too. You're not going to get your bill through, no matter how much financial weight you might have behind you. You need to be able um, to convince these people as well. They can hold up a bill for you if they want to. They're very powerful with the members that they work for and the committees they work for. To me, that's really important stuff, right? Things get made or broken sometimes on these little things that, that outside the building we don't think of. So I really wanted to give those people some, some credit this year. And I, I think, you know, I'm proud of it. I think we did a good job with that. Yeah, it's been interesting. And the response at both, you know, the top 100 event we so for those of you not familiar we have a live event uh the day that we release the book and we post the list on the website and we have a live event over at the sutter club and we do a live countdown We're really fortunate uh, former speaker bob hertzberg and uh current assembly member buffy wicks did the countdown for us uh and in in real time and it's funny you could see the reactions of the people in the room and and like you mentioned leah lopez there was a little cheer when leah lopez uh, appeared. No one knew she was going to be on there. Obviously, no one knows who's on or off the list, but uh, just a spontaneous reaction, you know, in real time. Uh, and it's also interesting that occasionally people will appear that no one really knows. They're like, why are they on the list? Then later on, you found like, oh, that person, you know, controlled $35 million in spending <laughs> on this campaign. And, you know, most people in the room had never heard of them, but suddenly they're like, oh, I should have heard of them. You know, so it's interesting when you get someone that's like kind of comes out of the blue, but everyone says, oh, yeah, they really should be there. You know, one other person I, I'll, I'll call out here is Sue Parker. She's the chief clerk of the assembly. And most people, you know, that's a name people. Who? Uh, well, Sue Parker, she's the first woman to ever hold that position in California. In all our years of government here in California, she's the first woman 
to be chief clerk of the assembly. She was the first woman to be the assistant chief clerk. She is the first woman of color to have those positions. And that position is really important. It's the, she's the parliamentarian of the chamber. She's responsible for you know, all the official documents, keeping all the bills, the papers, the records. She engrosses things and rolls the bills. All of those things, uh, including the history of the, of the chamber, that's all her responsibility. And since she's been in the job, she has been gradually pushing and moving it uh, toward a much more electronic system. Let me tell you what, <laughs> that's really, really important stuff. Now, is she going to be on the list every year? I don't know. Again, next year is next year. But I think it's really important to acknowledge people like that, too. And that's another thing we really tried to do. I mean, you mentioned she's the first woman to be in that role. We have to note that this is the first time that we have had a top 100 that is majority woman. And that actually was a very sore sticking point on the, that first list that came out in 2009. Women were, in retrospect, woefully underrepresented. And boy, did we hear about that. Uh, you know, John and Anthony were sort of taking a task. Uh, Robin Swanson, who was on the podcast last week, mentioned that she had co-written an op-ed. And, you know, I think they realized like, wow, we really did miss a lot of people. So this year was the first time that there were more women on the top 100 list than uh, men. We have, we've often had, I believe, more women in the top 10 you know, because they're often governor staff. And certainly Jerry Brown had a very large contingent of women working for him in very high positions. And I think Governor Newsom does that as well. But on the list, and I have to say, we really screwed up. I didn't realize this until today when Shonda Wesley made a Twitter post uh, with a Barbie theme. And I thought, I cannot believe we had the first majority female uh, top one on the list. And there is not a single mention of Barbie in, this entire, in the entire list. So I'm like, oh, we really dropped the ball there. We could have been part of the part of the zeitgeist of the, the Barbie moment. And we, we really screwed up there. Yeah, we could have had the Barbie moment. That's for sure. But, you know, I want to address that really briefly, too. You know, that's another one of those things. I did not have, you know, I said this earlier, but did not have the agenda of saying we need to have majority female on this list. I did not come in with that mindset. What I did come in, and I, I said this earlier, was looking at the bigger picture, looking at what I consider the fuller picture, to me was natural the way the list ended up, right? Because if you look at the capital, look at some of these positions that, that we've been talking about here that are filled by women, and they have been for a long time. Women in the capital community know that women make the capital run, right? That's just reality. And so looking at it in the fuller picture, I think, is how we ended up with the majority female list. And again, is it going to be this way every year? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. We're going to, you know, we're going to look at it every year. I'm sure there are many really, really uh, worthy candidates that I didn't get to this year that I'll be looking at in the future that we'll all be talking about in the future. So that's a possibility. Um, but I thought it was really important this year in particular you know, because we've been talking about parity uh, among the electeds in the building for a while, we've certainly seen the push for that. Um, and that's one of the reasons this year we included uh, Susanna Delano of Close the Gap, which those in the community know they are a group that recruits uh, women to run for office and specifically progressive uh, Democratic women. There are other groups that recruit uh, Republicans or or nonpartisan groups that recruit. I didn't want to necessarily leave anybody else out. I, I chose uh, Susanna and closed the gap because last year's elections, we saw, I think it was 11 uh, new women elected to the legislature or 12. I can't remember the exact number now, uh, but 11 of them came through, uh, closed the gap. And so to me, that was a really, really big deal. And you know, Susanna's essentially a one-woman shop. She's their only full-time staffer or has been for most of their her career. I think they have more now. How do you not recognize something like that? I mean, that, that you want to talk about juice. <laughs> You're going out there and finding, you know, really, really good candidates to run for office. I think that's really important. So that's another one I, I'm, I'm really, um, I think our timing meshed with what's going on. And of course, as I noted 
we beat the legislature to the punch here because we we were uh, we had parity before they did. But I, I'm going to guess they weren't. They're not going to be far behind us. And if they and if that's the case, people like Susanna Delano are, are going to be a big reason why, among others. I really again, I don't want to cut anybody out of that of that loop. There, there's California Women Lead. There's Emerge. There's there's others. But um, but Susanna was our choice this year. Well, and speaking of elections, so traditionally the top 100 list for the following year will be influenced by the elections that had happened the previous November. And this was certainly an example of that. There was Doug Herman uh, with the strategy group who uh, ran the campaign for mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass. And he really pulled a hat trick in that they were outspent. I think the final numbers were something like 11 to one by a candidate who was being run by Bear Star Strategies. Bear Star Strategies uh, is the governor's campaign uh, campaign group. They run. Uh, they ran Kamala Harris's uh, presidential campaign. I mean, they are heavy hitters, and they got beat by by Doug Herman. So, of course, I really think you know it's very good fit that he was on the list. And we also broke our own rule, and we put more than one person on one number. And do you want to talk about that decision? Basically, we're giving ourselves an out. Yeah. And, and you know, some people might consider it a cop out. I don't. I mean, look, we could have put all three of the Bear Star guys, on, you know, given them all their own slot. You know, Sean Clegg and Ace Smith and uh, Juan uh, Rodriguez, we could have, we could have uh, given all of them. And they all have had that in the past, right? All of them have had that and they've all deserved that spot in the past. But we call it, we jokingly called it the Aaron Reed and Associates dilemma. You know, there there are some of these organizations where they're just loaded with really competent people who have done unbelievable things for long periods of time. And, and you know, look, Bear Star could have been, uh, like I said, we could have done them all individually. We could have done Aaron Reed as one group. There's a couple of others. We did it this year. Yes, it was a, maybe it was a little bit of an out, but also, you know, we just decided that how do you differentiate any of these three from the others in a year like this one? So that's the way we decided to go. Again, will we do it again next year? I'd say odds are good. I don't know if it'll be, you know, Bear Star again, but, but certainly there are other organizations who could have been looked at with the exact same criteria. It's our rule. We can break it. So it is our rule. We can break it. Um, and then we can break it again. That's what we do. And in fact, we did. We broke our, our own rule in another way. Uh, you mentioned Liz Snow. And there was a big discussion around the office about how many of the folks in Speaker Rivas' office should have been on the list. And the reality is he only came into the actual title of Speaker a few weeks before we sent this off to print. So. Uh, Normally, that would not be something you would you would sort of leave someone off. However, given that this speakership battle had been ongoing for so long, it, I think started last summer, mm-hmm. and also the the fact that the speaker has so much power, we did opt or you opted to put Liz Snow on, even though she really hadn't been in that position very long. She, however, had been uh, in the Capitol for a long time. Was uh, the chief of staff for Jim Wood. And so it's not like she just like wandered in off the street, you know? No, absolutely. I mean, Liz Snow was very much a, a known quantity, which was part of the, the reason she got the job. And it's something I noted in the, you know, when in her bio was that, you know, uh, I think Steve O'Meara had been the chief designate uh, during that six month long waiting period before uh, Revis took the gavel away from Anthony Rendon. But when it became clear that he didn't really want that job full time, you know, Liz was a was a somewhat of an obvious choice. And and the big part of it is because she is such a known commodity and she had been there and she'd been the chief of staff to somebody who had been one of Revis's, um, you know, real supporters. So, you know, yeah, like, as you said, I think he's put it best. It's not like she just wandered in off the street. And, you know, and she'd been uh, executive director of the California Dental Association's Political Action Committee. And, you know, I mean, she's she's been around a long, long time. She knew what she was doing. 
you know, another one where I think maybe we broke the rule a little bit was with um, Yana Garcia, because uh, she is fairly new to the job. Uh, you know, if you're not familiar, she's the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, but she's also, you know, it's not her first rodeo. She's been around for a long time. Um, and she really hit the ground running. Now, she started last fall. She's really hit the ground running. They're responsible for a lot of things, a lot of departments, a lot of boards, uh, water resources, air resources, uh, cow recycle, uh, pesticide regulation. I mean, so she's got responsibility in a lot of areas. And so new to this position, yes, but that's another one where I probably you know, broke the rule a little bit and said, but you know. Although, you know what, I think uh, the fall is plenty of time. I mean, she had plenty of time to get in there and make her mark in that department. I think in the past, it's always been that we thought you had to be there at least a few months. And she's been there well more than a few months. So now one place where we were in a conundrum was the head of the building trades union. Yes. BCTC. Uh, Andrew Meredith had taken over, had big shoes to fill. Robbie Hunter had been there for quite some time. Robbie Hunter took over for Bob Balganorth, who was also big shoes to fill. And Andrew Meredith was there for a time, but he announced he was leaving again about a month before we went to press. And yeah. so we didn't know what to do. Ultimately, uh, ultimately, there's no one from BCTC, which in a weird way is, is sort of a failing on the list because obviously the building and construction trades are still a huge player in the housing discussion and they will have a tremendous amount of influence on legislation and on the governor's decisions, etc. They have, I, I can't even think of how many people they have on the ground when you look at all their umbrella groups, uh, but there's no one there on the list. And, you know, normally I think Robbie Hunter had been in the top 10 for most of the past 10 years. Uh, Andrew Meredith was quite highly placed. We just don't know what to do. And I'm my guess is probably next year they'll probably be back because they'll have the new person will be in place and everything will go. So that was an interesting thing where we just weren't sure how to respond to that, but there just wasn't enough time to figure it out. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I mean, Chris uh, Hannon, um, I don't know if he's going to be in Sacramento or if he's going to stay down South. Um, yeah, there were more questions than answers there. And yeah, I, I, I think it was actually less than a month from, you know, because I think uh, if I remember right, he stepped down on June 30th and we really had to have this list put together by the end of uh, before the end of of July. So it was less than a month that we had. And we just, you know, I, I'm I'm with you. I'm pretty sure that next year they'll be represented. But I think that's just one of the ones we really couldn't tell who was the right person there. And, uh, you know, we got a year to figure it out. Yeah, well, and also the right person there and where do they go on the list? I mean, right. uh, you know, you just have to see and because because we really have seen changes at organizations make a huge difference. Uh, you know, there was CCPOA was the one that comes to mind. I mean, Don Novi was, I mean, a force to be reckoned with. And it's not that his successors were nothing, but they were just it never was the same after he left. So you just never know, you know, and you don't want to just guess and throw it throw a dart at the dartboard and say, we'll put them on at this number. So uh, we'll have to see. That's kind of the rationale for why you let someone be in their position for six months or longer before you make an assessment, because how do you make an assessment when they just got there and, and, you know, you just don't know what the situation is going to look like on the ground. Yeah. I, and, and again, to reiterate, this is all so subjective. We know it. We're not, you know, I, I wanted to make it very clear going in. And I I really, really also want to reiterate one other thing. The response so far, I think, has been overwhelmingly positive. And I I think as much to do with anything that, that we did or I did or you did or, uh, you know, in terms of putting the list together, it was just the idea of taking the list and taking a new look at it and trying, you know, to apply a little bit of a different lens. And because I think everything, if, if anyone, if you've known me for 10 minutes, you've, you've heard me say everything in this world has a shelf life, right? Could be five minutes, could be 5 million years, but everything has a shelf life. And 
I am not in any way inferring that the top 100 is at the end of its shelf life or was or getting close, but everything, uh, the way you approach anything is always, in my mind, it's always a good thing to, to take a look every now and then and decide how can we freshen this up a little bit? How can we approach it a little bit differently? Is there something new we can do to, to keep this vital and important and something that people care about? And the one thing that I did hear you know, when I first got started here is, you know, people were starting to express some, you know, some cynicism about the list and a little skepticism about the list. And I just really felt like this was the perfect time, right? If we're going to do it, let's do it now. Let's look at it this way now. And I do think a lot of people have, certainly they've expressed to me the appreciation, not just the fact that it's majority female, although, you know, a lot of people have have noted that to me, but also that, you know, that just the fact that we decided to take change on with this and not just rest on the laurels until, you know, maybe people started to feel it was irrelevant. I think people still feel that it's very relevant and it does matter and it means something to be on the list. And some of the emails that I've got from people have, you know, been just a very appreciative uh, and it's not even them. They're not the one on the list, but just seeing those changes. And so you know, I want everyone to know that, you know, we heard people, I heard them. I, I you know, I listen when people talk and, you know, I, I like to think that's how we're going to approach the list for the foreseeable future. Just, you know, how, how do we look at this list that is the most current and the most in step with what's the reality here, you know, today on the ground right now. And uh, we'll go from there. Well, and that's great. And that's kind of a, Great place to end this, although there's one last thing I would like to have you talk about, and that is the position of journalists on the list. And this has been something that has been talked about both inside the office and outside the office. And it's an interesting idea. You know, where do journalists really fit in? You you can talk about something like breaking the story that Gavin Newsom was at Jason Kinney's birthday party. They were having meal not wearing Clearly, that was a major scoop that changed the entire trajectory of the recall election, everything. No question that that was a moment that, that got a reporter on the list. But then there's the, you know, the day-to-day. And so that is really an interesting thing. And, and your early draft of the list, it wasn't half reporters, but it was close. I mean, there were so many, <laughs> there were so many reporters on that list. Uh, there were a lot, yes. And, there and, were and a lot. They, it did get weeded down. And so now we just had three, one of whom had never been on before. And I'm just hoping, you know, if we close this out, if you could talk about that and like the, the way that the strangeness of putting a reporter on a list of people who have clout in California public policy, when they're in theory, their job is to just cover it, not be it. Absolutely. And, and I think I struggled with that more than any other aspect of putting the list together. And you're right. I think in my very first, just throwing everything at the wall draft, I think I might have something like eight or nine, or I don't know, you, you know, you might remember the number better than me, but it was a lot. There were a lot of reporters. And and I knew that that wasn't how it was going to finish. But I also, I wanted to make sure I didn't at least consider the widest number of reporters as well. The way, same way I was looking at the building. And so um, ultimately, we decided on Ashley Zavala, George Skelton, and Laurel Rosenhall. And I think all three of them are absolutely deserving of being on this list. I mean, if again, if you read it, I referred to, you know, to Ashley as an O blank reporter. And that's that was part of what our conversation was when we got started was who in the press corps is that person that really sparks reaction in the people they're covering. And, 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 you know, there's lots of ways you can do that. Now, if you're a lousy reporter and you're not good at stuff and you just stir the pot all the time, that's one thing. Or you can be have a lot of the gravitas of a George Skelton because you've been there for s- six decades. For everybody else, it's a matter of what's the quality of the work you do? How consistent are you? And how fair are you? What's, the, you know, again, if you've known me, you've heard me say, we're in the relationship business. And I don't mean you're friends with people. I mean, you have the kind of business working relationship where they trust you and you trust them. And I, I, 
I could have kept all those people on, but in fairness, I said, okay, let's look at whose work right now meets all that criteria. Plus, they really do have an impact on how the people they cover are behaving. You cannot make an argument to me that Ashley Zavala is not that person this year. I mean, as I noted in her bio, I mean, there there are people in the building that don't like her and, you know, they feel like she's maybe, you know, a little hard on them. Hey, tough. That's the job. And I think she does a great job um, asking questions that need to be asked and asking them and of people who don't want to have them asked. But but that's the job. She does a great job of it. You know, George is George. I mean, nobody can can synthesize California politics from that altitude better than him. And look, Laura Rosenhall could have been on this uh, list for a long time as a reporter. Uh, now she's the LA Times bureau chief. And she's, uh, believe me, Hannah Wiley was in that original group of people. Taryn Luna, uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, ben Christopher over at Cal Matters. There are people at Kaiser Health News. You know, there, there were uh, the political people, uh, uh, folks at the, at the Chronicle. I strongly considered you know, folks like Emily Hoven at the Chronicle, they all move the needle in their own way. But, but and, you can't, and you can't forget Dave Lesher, you know, the who ran Cal Matters, basically built it from the ground up for eight years. And now he's off doing, you know, God knows what. I mean, he's got a new data. Pro- I'm really curious to see what his new data project is going to be. We were just talking to, to the new editor over Cal Matters, but uh, he's been on the, a lot of these folks have been on the list in prior years as well. Uh, Lesher being an example, but, you know, there's a lot of people out there. And I know that one of the things that John always talked about when he was putting the list together is that you wanted someone who was punching above their weight. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly I think that Zavala, Skelton and Rosenthal are all, are all doing that. And I would agree in your write up, you said something that she really, Laurel Rosenthal really could have been on this list any year since she started. And she really she has owned the capital in for years. I mean, she really has covered it in a way that I feel like very few other people in the last 20 years really have. She has a deep understanding and a deep, her sources must be bananas. Uh, so I was you know, quite happy to see her on there this year. Yeah. And again, it was a, it was one, one of the harder choices, you know, deciding on what reporters to be on this list. And that is where I gave, a lot of weight to a body of work. And, and then again, with Ashley, not so much the body of work because she hasn't been here that long, but certainly the impact of her work. Uh, there are many others, as there are with so many of the other people we could be talking about and all the other spots on this list who, who uh, could easily have made a case to be here. I, I'm, I'm very pleased with the three we, we have. We'll see what next year looks like. Well, and I have to, you know, before we close, I do want to give a shout out to our uh, sketch artist, Chris Sherry. And every year, one of the things that kind of makes the top 100 unique is the drawings. We commission drawings of the folks who are going to be on the list. And that's why people are wondering, well, why couldn't you change the list up, uh, you know, even at the last minute? Well, (laughs) there's some things going on. And one of those things is that we actually have to track down illustration. I mean, track down photographs of the people who are going to be on the list. And then we commission a drawing from artist named Chris Sherry. Chris Sherry is actually a school teacher, a public school teacher in Stockton, California, who has this incredible knack for capturing likenesses. And uh, we saw his work years ago and approached him with this project. I I think it's been about six or seven years ago that we approached him and said, could you do a hundred drawings? And he said, sure. And so we've been having him do updates every year. And Every year, I love to get these things in and see the scans of the illustrations. And, uh, you know, I I think this project would be very different without him. I just love what he brings to it. And, uh, you know, I got to say, people don't always love their illustrations. You know, it's not a headshot. It's not a glamour shot. uh, But I feel like he does capture, you know, capture a likeness. So uh, so hats off to Chris Sherry, who once again has done a great job. And it was really fun to see them, you know, all these new illustrations this year come in. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, I'm, let me, if you'll indulge me just for one more quick minute, big kudos to you, uh, to Molly Dugan, our board chair, to John Howard, who helped out with a lot of the write-ups, uh, 
you know, with Joe T for all of the work behind the scenes. I mean, folks, I, this is such a, a team effort. And yes, I'm the bottom line for the, for the, choosing the actual list, but none of it would matter without all of the other stuff, all of the people on the board, so many people around the community that shared, like, and I said this earlier, shared insights and that kind of a thing and, and helped out. Can't say enough for, for the patience everybody <laughs> had with me as I was trying to figure out what it was I was doing here for a while. Right. So uh, really, I, I can't say thank you enough. And, 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 you know, I really do look forward, look forward to it actually again next year, I'll be better prepared for sure, for all the peripheral things, but uh, thanks, thanks to everybody uh, for you know really shepherd, helping to shepherd me through this uh, this initial uh, foray of being responsible for all this. Well, and you've already learned the the number one lesson of the top one hundred list, which is you start working on next year's list the day after the top one hundred event. You know that's that's the lesson is it, it's never too early to start. Oh, somebody asked me at the at the party the other night when I was starting on the next list, and I said, uh, "What time is it?" Because <laughs> you're right. Uh, the minute we're done here, that's why. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to make a really quick. Who had the worst week in California politics this week? Because it's early, and this is kind of a special edition. But so, who had the worst week in California politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Well, you know, we often have multiple candidates, but th this time, uh, to me, it's there, there's a no-brainer here, and that's the former Anaheim mayor, Harry, I, I, I hope I'm saying it right, Sidhu, who, um, had, who resigned uh, not too long ago, but this week, he entered a plea agreement um, where he conceded that he, in fact, did lie to FBI agents. Uh, people down south will probably remember uh, Sidhu had championed a sale of uh, Angel Stadium where the Anaheim Angels of Los Angeles play their games uh, to Artie Moreno, who owns the Angels. And the whole thing was it was supposed to be a great deal for everybody. And he wasn't going to get anything out of it, except the FBI found uh, secret recordings of him talking about how he was actually angling to get a million-dollar campaign contribution out of the deal. Um, they also had evidence he had destroyed emails that had um, provided Moreno's group with confident, uh, confidential information about the city's negotiations, uh, including revealing that they were doing a mock city council meeting where, uh, you know, essentially where they were going to, it was going to be a sham, essentially, to, to get... Um, you know, this deal through. Uh, so needless to say, he had, I think he resigned before he, he admitted the culpability, but uh, this week he entered into a plea agreement and uh, his career, I think is over in Anaheim. It's safe to say. I think we've got a winner. All right, Rich. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, we will, uh, we'll be back to this before too long. Absolutely. Thanks, Tim. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.